Section 5 of Irish Wit and Humour. The author is anonymous. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by James Carson. Arthur O'Leary, Part 1. Arthur O'Leary was born in the year 1729 at Acres in the parish of Fanlobus, near Dunmanway, in the western part of the county of Cork. His parents were undistinguished among the industrious and oppressed peasantry, who at the time of his birth suffered under the operation of the penal laws. The family from which he descended was early distinguished in Irish history, but if his immediate ancestors ever enjoyed a higher rank in the social scale than that which is derived from successful industry, their circumstances had changed long before his birth, as a name which excited the respect of his countrymen, and a mind worthy the possessor of such a name, were the only inheritance of which he could boast. In the year 1747, after having acquired such share of classical literature as the times he lived in would permit, O'Leary went to France with the intention of devoting himself to the service of the Catholic Church. A convent of Capuchin friars at St. Malo in Brittany was the school where O'Leary imbibed the principles of the learning, virtue, and philanthropy, which during a long life formed the prominent traits in his character. After having received holy orders, he continued to live in the monastery for some time. In the year 1771 he returned to Ireland and became resident in the city of Cork. Shortly after his arrival there, he contributed to the erection of a small chapel in which he afterwards officiated, and which was generally known in Cork as Father O'Leary's Chapel. Here he preached on the Sundays and principal festivals of the year, to persons of different religious persuasions, who crowded in to excess when it was known that he was to appear in the pulpit. His sermons were chiefly remarkable for a happy train of strong moral reasoning, bold figure, and scriptural allusion. His Controversy with an Infidel Sometime in the year 1775, a book was published, the title of which was Thoughts on Nature and Religion, which contained much gross blasphemy. Its author, a Scottish physician of the name of Blair, residing in Cork, undertook to be the champion of free thinking in religion, and under the plausible pretext of vindicating the conduct of Servetus in his controversy with Calvin, this writer boldly attacked some of the most universally received articles of the Christian creed. The work attracted some share of public attention. A poetical effusion in verse was addressed to Blair in reply by a minister of the Protestant Church, and an Anabaptist minister also entered the lists with a pamphlet nearly as sceptical as the one he professed to answer. Father O'Leary's friends thought his style of controversy better suited to silence the doctor than that of either of the tried opponents, and persuaded him to enter the lists they were not disappointed. His reply crushed Blair, 
while his wit and logic and grand toleration raised him to the esteem and gratitude of his fellow-men. His first letter opens with this beautiful introduction. Sir, your long-expected performance has at length made its appearance. If the work tended to promote the happiness of society, to animate our hopes, to subdue our passions, to instruct man in the happy service of purifying the polluted recesses of a vitiated heart, to confirm him in his exalted notion of the dignity of his nature, and thereby to inspire him with sentiments averse to whatever may debase the excellence of his origin, the public would be indebted to you. Your name would be recorded amongst the asserters of morality and religion, and I myself, though brought up in a different persuasion from yours, would be the first to offer my incense at the shrine of merit. But the tendency of your performance is to deny the divinity of Christ and the immortality of the soul. In denying the first, you sap the foundations of religion. You cut off at one blow the merit of our faith, the comfort of our hope, and the motives of our charity. In denying the immortality of the soul, you degrade human nature, and confound man with the vile and perishable insect. In denying both, you overturn the whole system of religion, whether natural or revealed and in denying religion you deprive the poor of the only comfort which supports them under their distresses and afflictions you wrest from the hands of the powerful and rich the only bridle to their injustices and passions and pluck from the hearts of the guilty the greatest check to their crimes i mean this remorse of conscience which can never be the result of a handful of organized matter this interior monitor which makes us blush in the morning at the disorders of the foregoing night which erects in the breast of the tyrant a tribunal superior to his power and whose importunate voice upbraids a cane in the wilderness with the murder of his brother and a nero in his palace with that of his mother deploring the folly of him who thinks his soul is no more than a subtle vapour which in death is to be breathed out in the air he holds that such a person should conceal his horrid belief with more secrecy than the druids concealed their mysteries in doing otherwise the infidel only brings disgrace on himself for the notion of religion is so deeply impressed on our minds that the bold champions who would fain destroy it are considered by the generality of mankind as public pests spreading disorder and mortality wherever they appear and in our feelings we discover the delusions of cheating philosophy which can never introduce a religion more pure than that of the christian nor confer a more glorious privilege on man than that of an immortal soul his interview with dr mann before he entered into a controversy with dr blair he deemed it prudent owing to the state of sufferance in which catholic priests then lived in ireland to obtain the sanction of the protestant bishop of the diocese to this end he waited on dr mann at the episcopal palace 
the interview is said to have been humorous in the extreme o'leary's figure joined to an originality of manner sterling wit and an imagination with which gave a colour to every object on which it played made him a visitor of no common kind and as the bishop was not cast in the mould of handsome orthodoxy the meeting was long remembered by both parties after some explanation dr mann gave his consent to the undertaking in consequence of which the public were soon gratified by the appearance of his letters to blair whose discomfiture was so complete that he never wrote a public letter afterwards controversy with john wesley wesley published in january seventeen eighty six what he called a letter containing the civil principles of roman catholics also a defence of the protestant association in these letters he maintained that papists ought not to be tolerated by any government protestant mohammedan or pagan in support of this doctrine he says again those who acknowledge the spiritual power of the pope can give no security of their allegiance to any government but all roman catholics acknowledge this therefore they can give no security for their allegiance in support of this line of argument he treated his readers to this bit of lively information but it might be objected nothing dangerous to english liberty is to be apprehended from them i am not so certain of that sometime since a romish priest came to one i know and after talking with her largely broke out you are no heretic you have the experience of a real christian and would you she asked burn me alive he said god forbid unless it were for the good of the church in noticing which father o'leary humorously replies a priest then said to a woman whom mr wesley knows i see you are no heretic you have the experience of a real christian and would you burn me says she god forbid replied the priest except for the good of the church now this priest must be descended from some of those who were tempted to blow up a river with gunpowder in order to drown a city or he must have taken her for a witch whereas by his own confession she was no heretic a gentleman whom i know declared to me upon his honour that he heard mr wesley repeat in a sermon preached by him in the city of cork the following words a little bird cried out in hebrew o eternity eternity who can tell the length of eternity i am then of opinion that a little hebrew bird gave mr wesley the important information about the priest and the woman one story is as interesting as the other and both are equally alarming to the protestant interest alluding to the statute of henry the sixth which bound every englishman of the pale to shave his upper lip or clip his whiskers to distinguish himself from an irishman he says it had tended more to their mutual interest and the glory of that monarch's reign not to go to the nicety of splitting a hair but encourage the growth of their fleeces and inspire them with such mutual love for each other as to induce them to kiss one another's beards as brothers salute each other at constantinople after a few days absence 
I am likewise of opinion that Mr. Wesley, who prefaces his letters with the interest of the Protestant religion, would reflect more honour on his ministry in promoting the happiness of the people by preaching love and union than in widening the breach and increasing their calamities by division. The English and the Irish were, at that time, of the same religion, but divided in their affections, were miserable. Though divided in speculative opinions, if united in sentiment, we would be happy. The English settlers breathed the vital air in England before they inhaled the soft breezes of our temperate climate. The present generation can say our fathers and grandfathers have been born, bred, and buried here. We are Irishmen, as the descendants of the Normans who have been born in England are Englishmen. Thus, born in an island in which the ancients might have placed their Hesperian gardens and golden apples, the temperature of the climate and the quality of the soil inimical to poisonous insects have cleansed our veins from the sour and acid blood of the Scythians and Saxons. We begin to open our eyes and to learn wisdom from the experience of ages. We are tender-hearted, we are good-natured, we have feelings, we shed tears on the urns of the dead, deplore the loss of hecatombs of victims slaughtered on gloomy altars of religious bigotry, cry on seeing the ruins of cities over which fanaticism has displayed the funeral torch, and sincerely pity the blind zeal of our Scotch and English neighbours, whose constant character is to pity none for erecting the banners of persecution at a time when the inquisition is abolished in spain and milan and the protestant gentry are caressed at rome and live unmolested in the luxuriant plains of france and italy the statute of henry the sixth is now grown obsolete the razor of calamity has shaved our lower and upper lips and given us smooth faces our land is uncultivated, our country a desert. Our natives are forced into the service of foreign kings, storming towns, and in the very heat of slaughter, tempering Irish courage with Irish mercy. All our misfortunes flow from long-reigning intolerance and the storms which, gathering first in the Scotch and English atmosphere, never failed to burst over our heads. We are too wise to quarrel about religion. The Roman Catholics sing their psalms in Latin with a few inflections of the voice. Our Protestant neighbours sing the same psalms in English on a larger scale of musical notes. We never quarrel with our honest and worthy neighbours, the Quakers, for not singing at all. Nor shall we ever quarrel with Mr. Wesley for raising his voice to heaven and warbling forth his canticles on whatever tune he pleases, whether it be the tune of guardian angels or langoli. We love social harmony and in civil music hate discordance. Thus, when we go to the shambles, we never inquire into the butcher's religion, but into the quality of his meat. We care not whether the ox was fed in the Pope's territories 
or on the mountains of Scotland, provided the joint be good. For both there be many heresies in old books, we discover neither heresy nor superstition in beef or claret. We divide them cheerfully with one another, and though of different religions, we sit over the bowl with as much cordiality as if we were at a love-feast. He concludes with the following remarkable paragraph, in which humour, eloquence, and philanthropy are happily blended, a paragraph worthy the honorary chaplain of the Irish Brigade. We have obtained of late the privilege of planting tobacco in Ireland, and tobacconists want paper. Let Mr. Wesley then come with me, as the curate and barber went to shave and bless the library of Don Quixote. All the old books, old canons, sermons, and so forth, tending to kindle feuds or promote rancor, let us fling out at the windows. Society will lose nothing. The tobacconists will benefit by the spoils of antiquity, and if upon mature deliberation we decree that Mr. Wesley's journal and his apology for the association's appeal should share the same fate with the old buckrams, we will procure them a gentle fall. After having rocked ourselves in the large and hospitable cradle of the free press, where the peer and the commoner, the priest and the alderman, the friar and the swaddler, can stretch themselves at full length, provided they be not too churlish. Let us laugh at those who breed useless quarrels, and set to the world the bright example of toleration and benevolence, a peaceable life and happy death to all Adam's children. May the ministers of religion of every denomination, whether they pray at the head of their congregations in embroidered vestments or black gowns, short coats, grey locks, powdered wigs, or black curls, instead of inflaming the rabble, and inspiring their hearers with hatred and animosity to their fellow-creatures, recommend love, peace, and harmony. MEETING OF O'LEARY AND WESLEY In a short time after this controversy had concluded, the parties met at the house of a mutual friend. Their different publications were mentioned, but kindness and sincere good feelings toward each other softened down the asperities of sectarian repulsiveness. And after an evening spent in a manner highly entertaining and agreeable, they parted, each expressing his esteem for the other, and both giving the example that public difference on a religious or political subject is quite consistent with the exercise of the duties of personal kindness and esteem. Wesley is said, in this instance, to have relaxed into a most agreeable companion, and O'Leary, by his wit, archness, and information, was an inexhaustible source of delight, entertainment, and instruction. Dr. O'Leary and Father Callanan Dr. O'Leary, though with great talents for a controversialist, always sedulously avoided the angry theme of religious disputation. Once, however, notwithstanding his declared aversion to polemics, he was led into a controversy. While he was at Cork, 
he received a letter through the post-office the writer of which in terms expressive of the utmost anxiety stated that he was a clergyman of the established church on whose mind impressions favourable to the catholic creed had been made by some of o'leary's sermons the writer then professing his enmity to angry controversy wished to seek further information on some articles of the catholic creed his name he forbore to reveal o'leary anxious to propagate the doctrine of his church replied in a manner perfectly satisfactory to his anonymous correspondent other doubts were expressed and dissipated until the correspondence had extended to eight or ten long letters o'leary in joy at his supposed triumph whispered the important secret to a few ecclesiastical confidants among whom was his bosom friend the reverend lawrence callanan a franciscan friar of cork their congratulations and approbations were not wanting to urge forward the champion of orthodoxy his arguments bore all before them even the obstacles arising from family and legal notions were disregarded by the enthusiastic convert and he besought o'leary to name a time and place at which he might lift the mysterious visor by which he had hitherto been concealed and above all have an opportunity of expressing his gratitude to his friend and teacher the appointed hour arrived o'leary arranged his orthodox wig put on his sunday suit of sable and sallied forth with all collected gravity of a man fully conscious of the novelty and responsibility of the affair in which he was engaged he arrived at the appointed place of meeting some minutes after the fixed time and was told that a respectable clergyman awaited his arrival in an adjoining parlour o'leary enters the room where he finds sitting at the table with the whole correspondence before him his brother friar lawrence callanan who either from an eccentric freak or from a wish to call o'leary's controversial powers into action had thus drawn him into a lengthened correspondence the joke in o'leary's opinion however was carried too far and it required the sacrifice of the correspondence and the interference of mutual friends to effect a reconciliation o'leary and the quakers in his plea for liberty of conscience father o'leary pays the following high tribute to that sect the quakers said he to their eternal credit and to the honor of humanity are the only persons who have exhibited a meekness and forbearance worthy the imitation of those who have entered into a covenant of mercy by their baptism william penn the great legislator of that people had the success of a conqueror in establishing and defending his colony amongst savage tribes without ever drawing the sword the goodness of the most benevolent rulers in treating his subjects as his own children and the tenderness of a universal father who opened his arms to all mankind without a distinction of sect or party in his republic it was not the religious creed but personal merit 
that entitled every member of society to the protection and emoluments of the state rise from your grave great man and teach those sovereigns who make their subjects miserable on account of their catechisms the method of making them happy they whose dominions resemble enormous prisons where one part of the creation are distressed captives and the other their unpitying keepers his reception at the rotundo by the volunteers it was impossible that the high and distinguished claims to respect and esteem which o'leary possessed should escape unnoticed by the volunteer association never was a more glorious era in the history of ireland than whilst the wealth valour and genius of her inhabitants became combined for the welfare of their country whilst every citizen was a soldier and every paltry political or sectarian difference and distinction was lost in the full glow and fervour of the great constitutional object which roused the energies and fixed the attention of the people it was a spectacle worthy the proudest days of greece or rome but it passed away like the sudden gleam of a summer sun o'leary was exceeded by none of his contemporaries as a patriot but though the coarse and misshapen habit of a poor friar of the order of st francis forbade his intrusion into the more busy scene of national politics his pen was not inactive in enlightening and directing his countrymen in their constitutional pursuits a highly respectable body of the volunteers the irish brigade conferred on him the honorary dignity of chaplain and many of the measures discussed at the national convention held in dublin had been previously submitted to his consideration and judgment on the eleventh of november seventeen eighty three the same day on which the message said to be from lord kenmar was read at the national convention then holding its meeting in the rotundo father o'leary visited that celebrated assemblage at his arrival at the outer door the entire guard of the volunteers received him under a full salute and rested arms he was ushered into the meeting amidst the cheers of the assembled delegates and in the course of the debate which followed his name was mentioned in the most flattering and complimenting manner by most of the speakers on his journey from cork to the capital on that occasion his arrival had been anticipated in kilkenny where he remained to dine and in consequence the street in which the hotel at which he stopped was situate was filled from an early hour with persons of every class who sought to pay a testimony of respect to an individual whose writings had so powerfully tended to promote the welfare and happiness of his countrymen o'leary and john o'keefe in the recollections of john o'keefe the following anecdote is related in seventeen seventy five i was in the company with father o'leary at the house of flynn the printer in cork o'leary had a fine smooth brogue his learning was extensive and his wit brilliant he was tall and thin with a long pale and a pleasant visage smiling and expressive 
His dress was an entire suit of brown of the old shape, a narrow stock tight about his neck, his wig amply powdered with a high poking foretop. In the year 1791, my son Tottenham and I met him in St. James's Park, London, at the narrow entrance near Spring Gardens. A few minutes after, we were joined accidentally by Jemmy Wilder, well known in Dublin, once the famous Macheath in Smock Alley, a worthy and respectable character of a fine, bold, athletic figure, but violent and extravagant in his mode of acting. He had quitted the stage and commenced picture-dealer, and when we met him in the park was running after a man who, he said, had bought a picture of Rubens for three shillings and sixpence at a broker's stall in Drury Lane, and which was to make his wildest fortune. Our loud laughing at O'Leary's jokes and his Irish brogue, and our stopping up the pathway, which is here very narrow, brought a crowd about us. O'Leary was very fond of the drama, and delighted in the company of the glorious boys, as he called the actors, particularly that of Johnny Johnstone, for his fine singing in a room. O'Leary and the Irish Parliament On the 26th of February, 1782, the following interesting debate took place, the subject under consideration being a clause in the Catholic bill directed against the friars. Sir Lucius O'Brien said he did not approve of the regulars, though his candour must acknowledge that many men amongst them have displayed great abilities. Ganginelli, Clement the Fourteenth, and the Reverend Dr. Arthur O'Leary are distinguished among the Franciscans, and many great men have been produced in the Benedictine order. He saw no temptation that regulars had for coming here, if it was not to abandon certain competence where they were for certain poverty in this kingdom. Mr. Grattan said he could not hear the name of Father O'Leary mentioned without paying him that tribute of acknowledgment so justly due to his merit. At the time that this very man lay under the censure of a law which in his own country made him subject to transportation or death from religious distinctions, and at the time that a prince of his own religion threatened this country with an invasion, this respectable character took up his pen, and unsolicited and without a motive but that of real patriotism, to urge his own communion to a disposition of peace, and to support the law which had sentenced him to transportation. A man of learning, a philosopher, a Franciscan, did the most eminent service to his country in the hour of its greatest danger. He brought out a publication that would do honour to the most celebrated name. The whole kingdom must bear witness to its effect by the reception they gave it. Poor in everything but genius and philosophy, he had no property at stake, no family to fear for, but descending from the contemplation of wisdom, and abandoning the ornaments of fancy, he humanely undertook the task of conveying duty and instruction to the lowest class of the people. If I did not know him, continued Mr. Grattan, to be a Christian clergyman, I should suppose him by his works to be a philosopher of the Augustan age. 
the regulars are a harmless body of men and should not be disturbed mr st george declared notwithstanding his determined opposition to the regulars he would for the sake of one exalted character of their body be tolerant to the rest but he at the same time would uniformly oppose the tolerating of any more regular clergy than that were at present in the kingdom mr yelverton said that he was proud to call such a man as dr o'leary his particular friend his works might be placed upon a footing with the finest writers of the age they originated from the urbanity of the heart because unattached to the world's affairs he could have none but the purest motives of rendering service to the cause of morality and his country had he not imbibed every sentiment of toleration before he knew father o'leary he should be proud to adopt sentiments of toleration from him he should yield to the sense of the committee in respect to the limitation of regulars because he believed no invitation which could be held out would bring over another o'leary in a more advanced stage of the catholic bill on the fifth of march these eulogies gave rise to some words between the rival orators as messrs flood and grattan were then designated in parliament i am not said flood towards the end of a speech the missionary of a religion i do not profess nor do i speak eulogies on characters i will not imitate no challenge of this nature ever was given by either of these great men in vain mr grattan spoke at some length to the subject under debate and concluded in these words now one word respecting dr o'leary something has been said about eulogies pronounced and missionaries of religion i am not ashamed of the part which i took in that gentleman's panegyric nor shall i ever think it a disgrace to pay the tribute of praise to the philosopher and the virtuous man his interview with daniel danzer father o'leary when in london had a great desire to see daniel danzer but finding access to the king of misers very difficult invented a singular plan to gain his object he sent a message to the miser to the effect that he had been in the indies become acquainted with a man of immense wealth named danzer who had died intestate and without a shadow of doubt was a relative of his it may be that a recent dream coupled with the troubled state of the palm of his right hand had their share in inducing daniel to allow the witty friar into his apartment once entered o'leary contrived to sit down without depriving mr danzer of the least portion of his dust which seemed to please him much for daniel held that cleaning furniture was an invention of the enemy that it only helped to wear it out consequently regarded his dust as the protector of his household gods daniel's fond dreams of wealth from the indies being dispelled o'leary began to console him by an historical review of the danzer family whose genealogy he traced from david who danced before the israelites down to the welsh jumpers then contemporaries of dancing notoriety his wit triumphed 
for a moment the sallow brow of avarice became illumined by the indications of a delighted mind and a dancer had courage enough to invite his visitor to partake of a glass of wine which he said he would procure for his refreshment a cordial shake hands was the return made for o'leary's polite refusal of so expensive a compliment and he came from the house followed by its strange tenant who to the amusement of o'leary and the astonishment of the only other person who witnessed the scene solicited the favour of another visit a fop the two-edged sword of wit as that faculty has been termed was wielded by O'Leary in the more serious circumstances of life, as well as in its playful hours. An instance where the painful exercise of this was happily spared occurred at one of the meetings of the English Catholics during the celebrated Blue Book controversy. One of the individuals who was expected to advocate the objectionable designation of protesting Catholic dissenters an appellation equally ludicrous and unnecessary was remarkable for an affected mode of public speaking what in dresses turned foppish would be appropriate as applied to his oratory he was no admirer of o'leary and the feeling of dislike was as mutual as could well be conceived him therefore o'leary selected as the opponent with whom he meant to grapple those to whom he communicated his intention and who knew his powers looked forward with expectation on tiptoe for a scene of enjoyment that no anticipation could exaggerate disappointment was however their lot the meeting passed over quietly and neither the objectionable matter nor speaker was brought forward however much his friends regretted this circumstance o'leary was himself sincerely pleased for he never desired to give unnecessary pain the gentlemen in concert with whom he acted dined together after the meeting and the conversation happening to turn on the disappointment which they had experienced in the result of the debate one of them who knew o'leary intimately inquired what line of argument he had intended to pursue if the meeting had assumed the objectionable aspect which was dreaded this was applying the torch to gunpowder he commenced an exhibition of the ludicrous so like what would have taken place so true in manner and matter to what every one who knew the parties could anticipate that the assemblage was convulsed with laughter to a degree that made it memorable in the recollections of all who witnessed it end of section five recording by james carson